0: Let's pray together. You know, the victory we've been singing about in these last couple of songs is the one expressed in the scripture John read for us a few minutes ago in Isaiah 12. This is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your victory story as well. It says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Father, we thank you this morning. That is, those who've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we can trust in you, that we need not be afraid. Father, that the greatest battle is already won. Jesus was victorious at the cross and the empty tomb. Now he offers that victory, has offered it to all who will believe. And Father, many of us here this morning have received Christ and we've trusted in his gift of salvation. We are uh, with him in the victory, sharers in what he accomplished. And we're so grateful for that because we had nothing to do with it. It was all your grace. And Father, through that relationship, that victory that was won, we are privileged Father as we've been studying together these past many weeks to to have a relationship with you that's dynamic and that's personal where we can speak to you and in your word and in prayer you respond to us and Father we just want to continue to, to to sort through and dig into that today explore the wonder and the beauty and the mystery of the fact that Almighty God wants to deal with and converse with people like us so Father, my very simple prayer this morning is that as we open your word and talk about that once again, that you would be the one who teaches us. That you would guide us in truth because your word is truth. That you would guard us from error and misunderstanding, Father, because we mess it up in so many ways. Father, I pray that you would, if there's anything that we brought in with us this morning that's going to hinder our our eyes from seeing the truth, our ears from hearing uh, your word, Father, our hearts from responding to your spirit, that you would deal with that even in this moment so that for the next few minutes we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And Father, in a little while when we leave, let it be with great joy, not because we came to church, not because we saw our friends. But because we sat at the feet of Jesus, the one who loved us enough to lay down his life for us, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. We'll take a moment as you're being seated to dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. If you have five-year-olds up through second graders, they can head to that door right there, go upstairs and get some time in God's word. At the same time, I would invite you to take out your Bible right away and turn with me in it to the New Testament book of James. If you don't know where James is, it's almost at the very end of the New Testament. I want you to open to James chapter 1, uh, which will be the first of several stops in um, in James's book that we are going to uh, to be in to, to look at this morning, and I'm just going to tell you right up front as you're finding your way there that this is going to be a little bit different than the way I I normally uh, 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 approach the teaching of God's word. Normally, what we do, especially if you're visiting, you'll want to know this: is we find one passage of God's word, we go to one passage, and we drill into it and dig into it and see what God has. But we're not going to do that today. Instead, we're going to. Um, I think even survey might be too uh, too uh, generous a term. We are going to surf through the Book of James and just touch down uh, at several different points as we continue to talk about what it means and what Jesus meant when he called us as his people to be a house. Of prayer. And one of the reasons that what we're doing this morning is different is simply because I've been telling you week in and week out, this is one massive message broken up into eight, now going on nine parts. It was seven, and we just keep building on it, but that's fine. But as we move toward the conclusion of this series, we move into the question, the reality of what do we do with what we've been taught? And that just demands, in some respects, that we look at God's word just from a slightly different angle. As we consider, as we contemplate and ultimately respond to the things that God has been saying to us. So have your Bible open to James chapter 1. Uh, we'll start looking there in a couple of minutes. But first, just to sort of, uh, sort of draw us all into the same starting point. Let me begin by saying that, that based on what we know from the Bible about the men who led the New Testament church the apostles and leaders who led the church from from the book of Acts forward i think it's pretty safe to conclude we can see in the scriptures that each one of them in their own way was a great man of prayer you think of the apostle peter and peter really was the point man for the 10 day prayer meeting that started when jesus went back to heaven at his ascension and ended 10 days later when the holy spirit came down on pentecost for 10 days the disciples 120 of them were in upper room most what they were doing was praying. Peter was in charge. Uh, The Apostle John was certainly a man of prayer as well. Uh, One of the ways we know that is is, is at the end of his first letter, 1 John, at the end of uh, of his uh, letter to the church, he said, this is the confidence we have before him, before God. Here's what we've learned, here's what we know, that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. John understood the reality and the power of prayer. Uh, It goes without saying that the Apostle Paul was a man of prayer. Read his letters and you'll see it's true. Constantly, he is writing and offering prayers on behalf of God's people. Frequently, he is exhorting and encouraging God's people to pray. Uh, The men who led the early church were undoubtedly men who were great people of prayer. But then there's James. James. The author of the book we are going to look at, or as I said, surf through in God's Word this morning, who I would suggest isn't necessarily always thought of in the same way. Because you see, the conventional wisdom about James, primarily, if not exclusively, based on what is recorded in this book, these five chapters that are open before us is that James was a man who was all about action. He was the hands-on, dirt underneath your fingernails, practical application, get-it-done guy in the early church. James was a man of action. And and we think that uh, and and sort of uh, arrive at that conclusion many times because he was, in fact, the one who said, hey, gang, don't be hearers of the word only. Don't just listen to what God's word says. Be doers of the word as well. Take what you've heard and go out and get it done. And and certainly this book that bears his name, the book of James, is incredibly and intensely practical. It's all about what we should do. But even so, we should understand that James was as passionate about prayer as any of the other leaders and, and members of the early church in the book of Acts and we know that in part because, uh, because it's he who, just so you know, there's several Jameses mentioned in the New Testament, at least three, some say four, some people say there's five different. This is the one, we believe, who was in fact the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. That James was uh, the son of Mary and Joseph, making him Jesus' half-brother. It's also believed he's the James who led the Jerusalem church as you get into Acts 14, 15, and 16. He's sort of the point man of the church in Jerusalem in those days. That's what the Bible uh, sort of leads us and, and instructs us about him. But what church tradition tells us, reliable church tradition tells us about James, is that around in Christian circles among his fellow believers, he was known as and even nicknamed as the Apostle with Camel's Knees. The apostle with camel 's knees, due to the fact that they were constantly his knee, his knees, his joints, physically speaking, were swollen and calloused, literally due to the enormous amount of time he spent on them in prayer. And, and what a closer look at his book would show us if we 're looking for it and we 're paying attention to what he writes is that James was a man who therefore operated on this conviction. And I want you to write this down somewhere and remember it, because it's the theme of this morning's message. James was convinced, above all else, that prayer, listen to me, is the most practical thing we can do. James, who may have been the most practical of all the disciples and apostles and early leaders of the church of Jesus Christ, was convinced that prayer is the most practical thing that we can do. And that's huge. Because while we would hesitate, be reluctant, maybe we would even be afraid to say so, often many times, and I'm speaking generally, but in the church as believers in Jesus Christ today, our behavior indicates we believe precisely the opposite. That prayer is not a practical thing, prayer is an impractical thing to do. And all you have to do many times is, is look at a church's, and, and this has been true of us at times far too often, look at a church's worship services and board meetings and committee gatherings and even the Bible studies, and, and often what you'd walk away thinking is that the unspoken notion is this, is that prayer is a bookend. Let's open in prayer so we can get down to business. Let's take care of business so we can close in prayer and ask God to bless and be with us all as we go on with our happy lives from here, that prayer is often a bookend. Something of which, if James were to show up, he most certainly would not have, practical as he was approved of. Because again, what was his conviction? James's conviction is that prayer is the most practical thing that believers in Jesus Christ can do. And I believe that's true on the strength of five insights he gives us in his letter And again, we're just going to dip in and dip out these five insights. If you want to fill in the blanks between it, I encourage you to do so. But as you work your way through the book of James, at least five times he weaves in this thread of prayer. And there are five things that he tells us about it. I want to show you what they are, and then we're going to talk about why they matter. Then we will be done. They are as follows. Five insights James gives us on prayer. The first of which is right at the beginning of chapter 1, when he informs us, he teaches us, he reminds us of the promise of prayer. He tells us that there is a promise associated with prayer. It is in James chapter 1, verse 5, where this is what God's word says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, let her, ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let me ask you something. Who among us here this morning cannot identify with the need almost on a daily basis in life for wisdom? We need wisdom all the time in our lives in all sorts of situations. We're, we're, we're faced with stuff each and every day in our lives, sometimes long protracted seasons of life where the thing we need more than anything else is wisdom because we just don't know what to do. How do I deal with that difficult coworker? How do I handle my rebellious teenager? How do I discipline my defiant toddler? How do I work with people who are different from me and, and don't see things the same way I do? How do I manage all the expectations that people place on me every single day? I need wisdom, and so do you. And James' counsel, right off the bat, in no uncertain terms, is it the first thing? Everybody say the first thing. Says, the first thing you should do is to pray. If you lack wisdom, James says, get on your knees, get on your face before God, and pray that he will show. Look at what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's pretty all-inclusive. Let him ask of God. And obviously James can't tell us what God's counsel with, will be, because every situation is different and may require or may lead God to, to, to show us very unique and specific things, he can't tell us what God's counsel will be. He assures us in no uncertain terms how God will deal with us when we come to him for wisdom. Look at the rest of the verse. He says two things. He says you can bank on two things if you go to God seeking wisdom. A, he will deal with us generously. God gives wisdom generously. That is, he will, one way or another, through his word, by his spirit, maybe through the counsel of other faithful, diligent believers, but some way or another, he will give you wisdom. It may not be in the moment, but he'll give it. It's a promise. He gives us wisdom through prayer generously. And then secondly, he makes an interesting statement. He says, and he will do so without reproach. What does that mean? means God won't do to us when we come to him for wisdom what we do to each other, which is, what in the world took you so long? I can't believe you're asking that question. Isn't this what we do to people? They come to us. I, how can you not know the answer to that question? How can you not know what to do? How many times am I going to have to tell you? What's James' promise? God will never do that to you. He'll never do that. You, you need wisdom. You go to him generously. Without reproach, some translations say without rebuke. The promise of prayer is this He's glad to receive us. He is glad to meet with us. That's the first thing James tells us. It's the promise of prayer. The second thing he tells us is in chapter three. So turn there. Second thing James tells us about prayer prayer is not expressly mentioned, but there's no question that that is still what he is dealing with, which is this He speaks to us secondly about the profitability of prayer. And yes, they're all going to begin with P the profitability of prayer, that it is a profitable or a wise investment of our time and energy. And while we do have to jump ahead a couple of chapters, we pass over all sorts of other teaching and instruction James gives us. When we land back near the end of chapter 3, in verse 17, we find a wonderful complement or sort of a continuation of the thought in chapter 1 about wisdom, because here's what James says. James three seventeen. look at it in your Bible. We've just been told God will give us wisdom when we go to him in prayer for it. And here's what he tells us in addition to that, that the wisdom from above, verse 17, is first pure, and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Now, I realize that the immediate context here is not prayer. And, and you know, if you've been around here, that I don't like to play games with pulling things out of context in order to make them say things they don't say. But James is saying what we understand him to be saying here about prayer and wisdom and how all of this fits together. Because what James is saying is, is he says, as we seek God in prayer, particularly when we seek him for wisdom, which is a common need every one of us has, He says, when we approach God in prayerful seeking, that he responds, listen, not just with a pat answer of yes or no or maybe or wait or not now or next week or whatever else his specific counsel may be, what James also tells us here in verse 17 is that when God through prayer gives his wisdom to us, he not merely gives us an answer, he offers us more of himself. He offers us more of himself. What James says is this, is that authentic prayer shapes our lives and our character into the likeness of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because here's what I know about Jesus, and you know this too, that he is himself, Jesus is, verse 17, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering and without hypocrisy. This is very much what I mean when I have spoken through this series about about prayer, engaging in prayer being a life-giving endeavor, something that gives life to our hearts and and to our spirit in our walk with Jesus Christ. What is James saying? He's saying that prayer is always a profitable use of our time because we don't just get stuff or not get stuff, as the case may be, but we, we grow deeper in our intimacy, and it makes us more like Jesus Christ. He said there's a promise of prayer. God's glad to receive us. There's a profitability of prayer. Praying makes us more like Jesus Christ. But then a third thing, and this is sort of a hard right turn, James picks up right at the beginning of chapter 4. Is he speaks with us about the things that prevent prayer as well. He warns us about the prevention of prayer, that there are some things that can get in the way and even thwart our seeking God, ostensibly in prayer. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what James writes. He says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not what? Ask. And you ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James here spotlights two attitudes, two dispositions, sinful dispositions, that will thwart our prayers every time. It doesn't matter how long you're on your knees, how how fervently you may pray. If either of these two attitudes are present, it will short-circuit the conversation. The first one is at the end of verse 2. It's a spirit of independence a spirit of independence. He says, you do not have, now in verses one and two, he's talking about all this kind of stuff we want and all the the, the means and mechanisms and, 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 and tactics we take to get the stuff in life we want, even if it tramples other people. But what does he say? He says, ultimately, you don't have because you don't even think to ask. Because there are some things, isn't it true in all of our lives, we think that we don't need God's help with? A certain three-year-old I know often looks me in the eye and tells me, I can do it by myself. And we would never say that to God, but that's how we live sometimes. There are just areas where, God, you take care of this stuff, and I will manage the rest. And James says, if you have a spirit of independence, essentially you don't even need God's help, well, don't count on God's help. Don't look for him to come through. Second prayer-killing attitude he talks about is an attitude, verse 3, of selfishness of selfishness. You do ask, but you don't receive. Why? And literally, the the, the language means you ask for yourself and do not receive because your motives are wrong, because you want to spend it on your own personal pleasures. In other words, the attitude is, I want what I want because it's what I want, and I don't really care what God or anyone else thinks. I just want it, and I want it now, and I want it for myself. And listen, that's why Think back over the past couple of weeks. The pattern that Jesus gave us in the Lord's prayer is so important. Because what do we do before we ever ask him anything according to Jesus' pattern? is First of all, we reverence or worship God. We look at who he is. We, we celebrate his great character and power and nature and authority and his love and his mercy and forgiveness. And then the second thing we do, Jesus taught us is to respond. What? Search my heart. Examine myself. Make sure there is no spirit of, of, of wickedness or evil or, or sin I'm holding on to. Then we're ready to talk to him about what we want and what we need. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Worship God. Check your heart. It's going to shape the kind of requests and the way that you pray. If we admit what needs admitting and confess what needs confessing, we won't have any problem, generally speaking, with the attitude of selfishness because God will have cleansed our hearts. Our wills will be aligned with his. So James says, watch out for those two spirits, independence and selfishness. They will, thirdly, he says, prevent your prayers. And The reason you want to deal with that and and understand that well is because of the fourth thing he tells us about just a few verses later. James speaks to us in James chapter 4 verse 8 about the presence of God in prayer. He gives us the promise of prayer, the profitability of prayer, the prevention of prayer, and then he says, once you understand all of those things, let's talk together about God's presence, how God meets with us when we pray. James 4 verse 8, couldn't be simpler or clearer, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. In other words, in keeping with what I just said in the first three verses, make sure that you have a clean slate before the Lord. But if you've dealt with that stuff, if you've confessed your sin and and righted your wrongs and reconciled where you need to, bank on it. You go to God, He comes near to you. When you seek His face in prayer, let me ask you a question Does God feel remote to you lately? Distant, far off, detached, uninterested. Listen, there may be all kinds of reasons for that. God does what he does and he doesn't always explain himself. But based on what's said here in James chapter 4, the first thing we should look at is how's a prayer life? If God feels distant, far off, and uninvolved, how's your prayer life? By that I mean what we've been talking about through this series. Are you seeking his face in his word? Are you truly seeking to meet with him and doing it on a regular basis have you answered the call to pray together which is really what we've been talking about through this series how's that working out are you meeting with him if not if you are not seeking him in that way perhaps you would if you recognize the fifth and the final insight i want to point you to here this morning that james gives us on prayer which is its potential James says if you're struggling to spend time on your own with God in prayer, if you're disinterested or unwilling to meet together with God's people in prayer, he says, let me just remind you a couple of things about the potential of prayer. James 5, verses 13 through 16, he says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must, what's your Bible say? Pray. Pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. It's just another form of prayer. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. For the effective prayer of a righteous man or woman can accomplish much. There's a lot going on here, but the bottom line is this. James is telling us prayer makes a difference. Prayer, seeking God's faith in prayer, always makes a difference. And, and he says, furthermore, that God is pleased to respond to our prayers. Just look at the verses again. He says, you're sick? How about you pray? Verse 13. You're having a great season in life? How about you pray? That's verse 13. Are, are, are things hard? Is life difficult? Are you dealing with some sort of hardship? Verses 14 and 15. Same counsel. Pray. Are you snared in sin? Have you fallen? Have you stumbled? Verse 16 it says the same thing. It's, it's time to pray. Now to clarify, and I need to do this quickly just so we understand. What James says in verses 14 and 15 is not necessarily an ironclad guarantee that calling a prayer meeting will fix what ails you. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And the reason that's not necessarily what he means is in verse 13, the term for suffering covers an array of hardships, including physical illness, but it's not just, I have an owie, I have a disease, I have an illness, I have a problem. It could be any number of different things. And the primary meaning of sick in verse 14 is actually weakness, primarily spiritual and moral weakness, when he talks about these things. And so what that suggests and again, we could spend a long time talking about this, and, and I'm probably getting into dangerous territory by only talking about it so much. But what James primarily has in mind here is our spiritual condition. The condition of our spiritual heart, before, our emotions, and, and, and our, our devotion, and our walk with Jesus Christ. But whatever it may be, physical, spiritual, moral, something else, relational, the potential still applies, because here's the bottom line. Even if God doesn't heal, if the issue is a physical illness, let me ask you something. Calling a prayer meeting, getting God's people together to seek his face, it'll always restore your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even if it doesn't heal your body. Sometimes God heals, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he gives us the answer we want at such situations, and sometimes he doesn't. But you're never going to be worse off, James says, for getting God's people together to seek his face. That will restore the one who has fallen. That will rebuild the one who is weak. It will give them courage to press on if God's answer is no. Every single time. Again, the the message is clear. I believe the message is clear. I hope it is clear to you as well. James is saying that prayer, particularly praying together, notice almost all of verses 13 through 16 refers to praying with other people. What's James' message? He's saying prayer is never a waste of your breath. Prayer is never wasted breath. It is actually, James tells us, the most what? Practical thing we can do. It is the most practical thing we can do. And with that principle established very quickly i understand we have done that we've just sort of touched on it and drawn out one principle what i want to do for our last few minutes together is simply share with you some real life examples of this principle and of the difference that praying together makes we've seen james insights about prayer he's telling us prayer is the most practical thing we can do prayer is never a waste of breath you say prove it i say you're on Because there are stories after stories after stories of the difference that praying together makes. Because here's the thing, and here's why I want to do this. is I think we'd all agree, if I asked for a show of hands, which I won't, we all agree as believers in Jesus Christ here this morning, God hears prayer and God answers prayer. Amen? We all believe God hears and answers prayer prayer we all believe at least in principle that prayer is not wasted breath but even so and this is me as much as anyone else i know we don't treat prayer as a a true priority or we do a whole lot more of it if we really believe what we're seeing here this morning we'd pray a lot more so let's talk about the difference that praying together makes i'm going to give you three stories i'm going to do it quickly first the first example the first illustration it's a pretty dynamic one of the difference of God's people, of what it praying together can make, occurred in the year 1857 in our nation. It's called, it's become known in your sense as the Businessmen's revival of 1857. Incredible story of God working among his people. The Businessmen's revival of 1857 actually began in a season of great turmoil in our nation. See if any of this sounds familiar. A massive wave of European immigration had led to ethnic riots in the streets of New York, killing in the streets because people, because of their background, couldn't get along. In the midst of all that, the Supreme Court handed down a wicked decision in March of that year, the Dred Scott decision declaring that African Americans are not to be considered citizens or even, for all practical purposes, human. In September of that year, the stock market crashed, and people were worried about what the next day was going to bring. Banks were closing. Businesses were, were, were folding. People, Christians, were thinking that the end had come. And it was in the midst of all that that a Christian businessman in Lower Manhattan named Jacob Lanfear decided to call a prayer meeting. He worked in Lower Manhattan. He tacked up signs around. He said, This coming Wednesday from noon to one, anybody who wants to is welcome to pray. September 23rd, 1857. The first day, six people showed up, none before 1230. (laughs) Looks for a moment like maybe this wasn't such a great idea, but the next week there were 20. A couple of weeks after that, there were 200 people gathering over their lunch hour in lower Manhattan to pray together, to pray for our nation, to pray for one another, to pray for God's people. In short order, similar prayer gatherings began sprouting up all over New York City with such intensity and to such a point that they they began meeting not once a week, but five days a week, from noon to one o'clock to pray. The secular papers reported, they said there's no air of fanaticism or wildness or screaming and yelling, this is people seeking God's face from his word together. By the spring of that year, 10,000 people were praying every noon hour in New York City for God's grace and his mercy to fall. The revival didn't stop there, though. From there, it spread that spring to Boston, to Philadelphia, to Pittsburgh, to Cleveland, even hit Chicago, where, in short order, five days a week from noon to one, in Chicago's downtown Metropolitan Theater, 2,000 believers in Jesus Christ were meeting to seek his face. Reports were coming in from places like Iowa and Nebraska and Kentucky. One church historian says there wasn't a, a community in America that wasn't touched by this revival. Similar gatherings at the same time that spring began occurring, began springing up on major university campuses. One estimate says 90 different universities began holding similar prayer meetings. Most notably, listen to this. This will give you hope. At Michigan, Northwestern, Cal Berkeley, Dartmouth, and even the University of Wisconsin. (laughs) People were coming together to pray. All told, in the span of two years, it's believed that one million men, women, and children out of a total population of 30 million in America surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. Why? In part because one man called for a prayer meeting. And God's people started to pray. See, say, well, that's cool, but that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I agree. It was a long time ago. Does God still do things like that? Yes, He does. I'll tell you a second story. It's about a couple of men I met last summer. The last summer, my wife and I attended a, a a pastor's conference in Denver, and one of the seminars. It was all about prayer, all about God's word. One of the seminars was hosted by two pastors who were there representing what have been nicknamed the praying pastors of Katy, Texas. See, 20 years ago, in the Houston suburb of Katy, a Baptist pastor decided it was time for the pastors of his community to start praying together, and so he did the same thing once a week from noon to one o'clock he opened up and invited to a weekly prayer meeting any pastor, regardless of denominational background, ministry leader, or believer who wanted to come. And they would simply spend an hour in worship-based prayer. They'd pray for each other's needs. They were praying for each other's churches. And in time, this gathering grew to include um, pastors from across all denominational lines, all sorts of backgrounds, races, ethnicities, economics. It's been going on for 20 years now. And what they told us, some of the things that God has done is in the course of the last several years in particular, these gatherings, these weekly pastors and ministry leaders prayer gatherings open to anyone. they had to buy their own building so they could host it each week. Now includes the city's fire chief, police chief, mayor, and superintendent of schools. To the point that five years ago, in 2010, I've shared this with some of you. The mayor of Katy, Texas, this Houston suburb, issued an official mayoral proclamation giving the keys to the city to Jesus Christ, saying, he will be lord of this town. These pastors every year are invited into the public school system in August to pray through all the classrooms before the school year begins asking God's blessing. Does God still do things like that? Oh, yes, he does. Why? Because one man decided to call for a prayer meeting. Say, well, that's cool, but doesn't God live in Texas? I mean, isn't everybody there a Christian already? I mean, the public schools, Christian schools. I mean, aren't they all sort of Christian? Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Let me close by telling you about something that's happening around here. And by no means do I present it to the same magnitude or in the same vein as the stories I've told. But I have hope that someday we will. And it's about your own elders, the men who shepherd this church, because last January at our first elder meeting of the year, we. The six of our elders, Greg and myself, we made a covenant together in prayer. And we committed ourselves to three things before the Lord that would govern going forward our elder meetings every time we meet. Before the Lord, we agreed, A, that we would honor our agenda, that the business of the night is what we'd stick to unless God clearly leads us in another direction. We were to come prepared. We weren't allowed to bring our own ideas and stuff in at the last minute. We would honor the agenda. That's probably the one we struggle with the most but we agreed to it. Second, we agreed to always resolve personal differences. Always. If something comes up, comes between us at one meeting, you don't get to come back to the next meeting until you've worked it out. We work it out because we value and cherish unity that much. We've never had a huge problem with that, but we agree we're not going to even let little grievances continue. But most significantly, and this is why I share it with you, we agreed in prayer to make prayer our first priority. That we would make worship-based prayer, our first priority. And so every time we've met this year ever since, including when we meet with the deacons once a month and any extra meetings we've called, we always begin with open Bibles before God. Sometimes for 30 minutes, sometimes for 45, a couple times we've gone for an hour just seeking God's face. And I don't say that to blow our own horn, I'm saying that that's what the leaders of this church desire. And they've been so gracious with me as we have moved slowly and haltingly with fits and starts but we said we will, regardless of how long, how daunting, how intense that evening's agenda appears to be, we will seek God's first face first. Keep in mind we did this through the commons acquisition process, one of the most heavy undertakings we've ever entered into. But we said prayer matters that much. Let me tell you what's happened since. Again, we've progressed slowly with fits and starts. I don't mean to paint it in brighter colors than it is, but I will tell you without question, our meetings have embarked marked by deeper unity. We just have an ease and a comfort in each other's presence. Uh, Our meetings have been marked with clearer direction. I don't see us struggling. I've been going to these meetings for a long time. We aren't struggling with decisions to the degree that we once did. But most of all, and perhaps most miraculously, our meetings have actually gotten shorter. Is this true, guys? Our meetings have gotten shorter multiple times this year, I frightened my wife by coming home earlier than she expected me on elder meeting night. She says, what are you doing here? So we got there. I said, and not only did we get done early, we got done so early, I did another half hour's worth of work before I came home. That's how early we got done tonight. Sometimes the agenda's this long, God has honored it. Why? I think it's because your elders made praying together their first priority. What am I saying? I'm saying James was right. Prayer is the most practical thing we can do. It is the most practical thing we can do. And too often, even with the best of intentions, we waste our breath as believers on so many other things other than than praying. At best, sometimes it just bookends the conversation. And again, if James showed up, he'd say, gang, you've got it backwards. You've got it backwards. And he would tell us, as today's big idea says, He says, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, here's the big idea. Never, never doubt the difference that praying together makes. Never. Never doubt the difference that praying together makes. Because when God's people seek, seek his face, God moves in mighty ways. Father, take the things of truth spoken this morning, seal them to our hearts. Take the things of the flesh that are unimportant, cause them to be forgotten so that we will leave thinking on, savoring only Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.